tuning into the third episode of the Finance Burrito, the spiciest, most burrito-filled podcast in Australia. Um, should we be reviewing more burritos? Maybe, maybe. Uh, but what we are investigating is personal finance and you know making it a little bit more palatable so who are we i am tom watson and i'm a journalist at mozo.com.au a financial comparison website and with me as always is my well she wrote this insightful co-host and fellow (laughs) mozo writer Liv g hey Liv. look i think it's very insightful to to back yourself so yes Are you going to write this every week? <laughs> My fantastic, skilled, just incredible co-host, Liv G, uh, back again. Hi. Did you have to put it in bold, though, and in, like, 36 font? It really stood out. <laughs> Took over the whole page. Um, anyway, hi. And hi, everyone listening. We're pretty chuffed that you're back with us again. And we've got some pretty hot topics on the table today. Um, so we're going to be doing a bit of a deep dive into pay transparency and the awkward task of asking for a pay rise, especially considering the current economic conditions. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard topic to navigate, you know, at the best of times, uh, but we will try and chart across through uh, these choppy waters. I was trying to think of a water metaphor. I don't know if I, <laughs> if I got that. Uh, but so that's what we'll be doing first up. And later on, we're going to uh, shift into shopping mode and spill the beans about some uh, wild isolation purchases. Oh, I've got some surprises up my sleeve for that one. Super keen. Me too. Got some, uh, yeah, some interesting bits to share. But first, it is time for the meat. Uh, we start every episode with this segment, and it's where we, you know, dissect financial data and cut out the most intriguing morsels for analysis, but, you know, in a fun way. Yes. So it's not necessarily a scientific procedure, but it is always interesting. And today, the topic is uh, pay transparency and asking for a pay rise. Oh my God, they are big, uh, big subjects. Um, yes, but so nerve-wracking. why are we actually talking about this today? Well, I think we both agreed that it's always a relevant topic, but totally. I think for a lot of people, um, you know, the uncertain economic times that we're living in at the moment actually makes it more relevant. Um, but it's a topic that continues to be like almost taboo. Like some people just don't like talking about their salaries, you know, for a host of reasons. And asking for a pay rise or negotiating your salary when you're starting a new job, well, those can be both really awkward situations for some. Totally. I'm just sort of thinking back sort of before the um, pandemic conditions to um, a time when I sort of experienced this firsthand in a workplace was kind of a little bit worrying, and then, it, but it kind of turned out well. So um, a few people who were on a a similar pay grade in a workplace where they weren't encouraged to talk about what they were paid. Uh, They they were friends, so they had a chat, Mm. and they figured out that despite being on the sort of same level of seniority, they were all getting paid um, quite differently because they all started at different times and clearly had negotiated. Yeah, and they're like sort of they all came into the business with the same amount of skills, and so they were like, this isn't super acceptable, and they took it to management and they said, hey, can we all, you know, please be on the same pay scheme that being you know the highest option seen as we all have the same skills and you essentially said the person uh, with similar skills was um yeah able to to get that rate and they um they got it so it's kind of a, a happy ending wow yeah so a bit of collective bargaining there 
A little bit, yeah. No, I don't think it, like, it, it did, I didn't, from what I know, it didn't turn out, like, it wasn't aggressive or anything. It was just like, oh, these are the facts. How about it? I, th- I think that's fair enough, right? Yeah. Um, well, I was kind of thinking about this too, but uh, less about kind of negotiating salary, more about just like the idea of talking about it. Because, um, you know, I know some people that would have no idea what their friends or family make. But totally. for me, thinking back, like, both my mum and my dad were really transparent about what they were earning. Like, I, I remember mum coming home after – um, her kind of like performance reviews and talking to me about the process and about cool. you know getting raised and stuff like that and I think it's something that I've carried on now and I'm open about that kind of stuff with my partner as well and you know not to uh, exact numbers but um, with my friends to some degree yeah I think that's really good when I yeah I don't even I don't remember it ever coming up as a kid in my home but whether maybe that was just intentional nosy. or not, maybe <laughs> you're like, "Oi, mum, what do you make?" <laughs> and how much of that can I get? I, you know, I need to scale my pocket money relationship. Yeah, to did any, you get any... a weekly instalment of pocket money in regard? And you're like, "Is that gonna scale up with your wage?" I should have. Gosh. Wow, what a kid! Um, but on that, I think one of the p- biggest uh, pieces of the pay transparency puzzle is around asking for a pay rise. Definitely. So, yeah, it's, it's awkward in a lot of ways. And there's some really um, interesting power dynamics at play, you know, between employers, managers, employees. Um, and then there's the issue of sort of having to prove your value in some way that, like, lines up numerically with the numbers. It can be a really kind of difficult task. Yeah, and that was before COVID happened as well. So, that's exactly. obviously thrown a pretty big spanner in the works. And I mean, you know, we're talking today um, about having a job and being in a position to, you know, a- approach a-, a raise or a salary increase or whatever it is. But uh, it-, it probably is worth saying that for a lot of people at the moment, um, they're not even in a position to be thinking about um, that because, you know, they've lost their job or they've mm. uh, had hours decrease. So, you know, it's, a, it's being able to be in that situation where you're even thinking about it is a pretty good one relatively, I'd say. Mm-hmm, for sure. I mean, having said that, if you have retained your job, um, maybe before this all happened, you you were on track for a promotion, or maybe you were just working more hours than you were before. Um, but these are unusual times, so perhaps the question a lot of people are asking themselves is, you know, less about how do I ask for a pay raise, and more about can I or should I. Yeah, it's kind of like it almost comes down to it being more of like an ethical decision about even approaching the conversation, Mm. whether or not it's like morally dubious. I don't know. There's some like definitely some big emotions around that. Um, But to sort of get a bit of a broader perspective, we did um, poll some everyday uh, workers in June um, to find out what uh, they were feeling about it. And they were kind of on the fence. Um, So 45% of them, of the people surveyed, said that they um, would ask for a pay rise um, with their reasoning being almost an even split between um, one, the rising cost of living, and then two, those costs in addition to their performance being good if you're you know, okay. asking yeah, for no, a pay Yeah, no, that rise. makes sense, yeah. Yeah, but then the other 55% said they wouldn't um, with a slight majority saying they were going to avoid asking for a pay rise um, just be- simply because of the economic conditions caused by COVID-19. Yeah, wow, that 
That actually surprises me, that 55% figure. I Maybe I'm being a little bit naive, but I didn't expect it to be so high, actually. Hmm. Um, I guess that's a testament to the level of uncertainty that's out there at the moment. And I guess at the end of the day as well, that it comes down to you know the individual job, the employee, the state that the company's in right now. So. For sure, like specific industries as well that are like either you're totally fine and maybe doing even better than before or, you know, yeah. situations like hospitality and the arts and it's just like, oh, yes, definitely up in the air. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Um, but then sort of talking about the idea of pay rises um, also got me thinking about when you first – interviewing for a job so scary times whether it's your first job or if it's your 10th job doesn't make a difference oh it's always Um, stressful always um so maybe it's happened to you tom and maybe it's happened to some of our listeners it's definitely happened to me when you're interviewing and you're asked to give salary expectations Mm. and i i never know how to approach this because i'm kind of like should i should i you know talk myself up and be like, yes, I am worth so much money. Um, you should definitely hire me. And I expect, <laughs> uh, you know, a six figure off the bat. Or do I lowball it to try to, to try to like look kind of good value for money? Oh, so I think God. it's difficult, right? And I think a lot of people, I certainly are more towards the, the low, the low ball angle. So essentially if you do sort of under undervalue yourself, you could get the job and be granted that salary, even if your skills and experience should kind of put you in a position to earn more. And maybe the company has even budgeted more for the role. So essentially by not advertising a wage and simply asking for someone's salary expectations, companies can really perpetuate some income inequality because people like might have been unemployed before this job and are mm. more inclined just to yeah, accept less for a job because they really need employment. Maybe you've been underpaid before and have come to expect that level of pay or even you're simply willing to accept less to be involved in a company that you, you really have a high regard for, you think is like doing a really good job in the yeah. industry to further your career. It's, it's kind of what you were saying before about this, this kind of like power dynamic and I mm-hmm. think a lot of the time people really undervalue themselves because it feels very competitive when you're going – for a for a new job because you, you don't know how many other people are applying for it if it's something that you want whether that's because you know you really like the actual job or you just need the money mm-hmm. you know it, it kind of gets to that point where you're thinking well what can i do to compromise sometimes totally and sometimes i know on like linkedin you can see how many applications for the job have been through yeah. linkedin and i'm like oh my god it's 300 people like what am i gonna do oh wow yeah that's uh, that's huge and I think it's one of those areas where transparency could probably help out there too. And I know this is not, you know, it's not the case where all employees are withholding salary bans or individual salaries. That's definitely not the case, but it it definitely does seem to be, to be common still Mm. um, from, from what I've heard and what I can see. Um, But, you know, speaking of transparency, I've actually got another really interesting little snippet of research for you. Oh, Um, yes. I know. I feel like I always have to cue (laughs) these up and really, like, hype it up before I do. Here's my fun fact for the week. Well, you've already got to give give some. (laughs) Yeah, it's your turn. This is my turn. Yeah, that's right. What do you got? What do you got? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, according to uh, to some research from Payscale, who um, they're a compensation software and data company from the U.S., um, they found that people most commonly leave a job 
because of pay. So, you know, duh, like no surprises there, right? That's a thing, for sure. Yeah. But over half of those thought that they were being underpaid and they actually weren't. So at least according to the industry standards and in terms of the industries that they were in. So even like if you even just think that you're being undervalued with your pay as kind of a monetary representation of, you know, how much a company thinks you're sick, um, it can cause you to leave a company. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in, in that situation, you've got people leaving the company because they're unsatisfied, even though they might have been making what the industry would yeah. consider to be decent. And if pay. the company had just shared, like, made it made it okay and more kind of culturally appropriate to talk about pay, maybe you would have compared yourself to your, you know, fellow colleagues and realized that you were sort of doing all right, and maybe everyone was doing all right. That's right. And they wouldn't have lost an employee at the end of the day. So, yeah, another way to look at it, I guess. Um, This has been a pretty big topic. Uh, We know we've only just scratched the surface of it. Um, So that's why we're actually going to dig into it a little deeper in our next section, which is the source. Um, This is where we go beyond our own financial knowledge and, uh, you know, hit the streets, mic in hand to find other sources of insight. Um, Well, except that we're not hitting the streets anymore. It's uh, very much a Zoom call these days. So, uh, yeah, this is the source for this week. So this week I spoke with Kate Borer, who is a careers coach and the founder and CEO of Young Professional Women Australia, which is like a peer-to-peer networking and advocacy group which supports um, women in their career progression and sort of strives for uh, equality across the board in all uh, workplaces. And she was really, really, really interesting chat. And she unpacked some of the effects of pay transparency or lack thereof and um, how to approach those conversations about salary expectations, whether that's in your first interview or when you're discussing um, a pay rise throughout your career. So, yeah, here she is. So, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll jump straight into it. So today we're talking about um, salary transparency. So what I want to start with, just super basics, um, how does keeping salaries hidden impact employees and those workplaces more generally? Yeah, it's interesting. I was speaking at a, um, uh, an event year ago or so uh, and it was fascinating because the person ahead of me was from industry and it basically said never disclose your salary to a colleague and I got up and said yeah I totally disagree with that um, yes some organizations actually have it in contracts I believe um, but I really think this it, it, you know the only person that a lack of disclosure of salary um, serves is the organization and what happens, and, and they're doing that because, you know, you, you've got to ask yourself the question, why is, or why is it that organisations don't want us transparently talking about salary? Because the view is that, um, and the, the data shows us this, the more transparency we have around remuneration, the more that salaries increase because all of a sudden, oh, you get paid that, well, I should be getting paid that. There's like an open market, right? It's like free mm. trade. Um, the demand supply forces equalise. Um, in terms of pricing. And so, you know, if the only person it serves is the organisation to keep salaries down. We see it in the, um, the public sectors, right, where most of them are banded. So, you yes. know, they'll be grade 10, whatever. And there's a band, often a $10,000 band, between the high and the low of that band. 
And again, when you go back and look at data, um, we know that the gender pay gap in the public sector, both state and federal, is much lower than it is in private and mm. corporate because over in private and corporate, um, two people are sitting next to each other, they're colleagues, and in general, people don't talk about REM. I often in a room will say to people, you know, put your hand up if you know what your best friend earns. Uh, less than 10% of people um, will will put their hand up, right? And it's interesting because we talk about everything with our mm. besties, right? They know everything about our life, <laughs> um, yet we don't know what they earn. So I think it's really interesting. I mean, I always ask the question. I talk to complete strangers and it's particularly when I'm, um, you know, working with them or talking about potentially working with them. I, it's like the next thing out of my mouth. But I know, I remember I had to get over my kind of awkwardness around it. Now I just say it like I'm just asking you, where do you live? But um, I do think there's this really interesting taboo kind of piece mm. that sits around money um, and remuneration and ultimately because it talks about, you know, what are we worth? Right? Yeah, totally. um, And there's huge shame attached to um, if I'm underpaid, you know, my, my experience, I do a lot of work with women, um, particularly professional women in, um, you know, kind of late 20s up to 40. Um, in my experience, one in two is underpaid by $20,000 or more. Um, the work we do with clients in terms of securing salary increases is phenomenal. It's not unusual to get 20, 30, mm. um, you know, bigger, bigger numbers, $90,000 in particular when they're getting um, new roles outside their existing mm. organisation. But, um, but it's huge. Yeah. Would you say sort of our, our caution in, in talking about it socially or in the workplace, would you say that's born out of the ideas that companies drum into us that we shouldn't be talking about it from like a contractual standpoint, or is it sort of something to do more to do with that status quo you mentioned? Yeah, I think it's um, wealth psychology, money psychology. We don't talk about money, right? We don't talk about um, how much houses are earned and we'd speculate around it. We don't, we just don't talk about that um, broadly. So you know, even my best friend, you can, she's, even when I ask her what she earns, you can tell she's like, Oh, mm. <laughs> um, just tell me. Um, and, you know, we studied together and, uh, you know, if, so I think it's, it's more around how we're raised. It's around um, not wanting to boast if, um, if perhaps we're doing really well, uh, not wanting to make other people feel uncomfortable or have, um, you know, there's a whole piece around identity. What does that say about me, um, either what I'm worth? There's a whole piece around identity of attaching what, I'm, what I earn um, and my value and my identity is as a, as a human. So, and the choices I've made. And then if I feel like I'm underpaid, all of a sudden I'm not speaking up for myself. So what does that say about my identity as well? So I think it's, it's, it's very, um, <laughs> it's, it's very rich and caught up in each other. Multi-layered yeah. for yeah. sure. Um, one of the things, um, we've been thinking about a lot, um, on this episode of the podcast is that, so the first step when you're going for a job, whether it's your first job or your 20th, whatever, um, What's the best way to approach that salary discussion? Because a lot of places will straight up ask you what your salary expectations are. And some, some, sometimes you sort of, you're at a loss, don't really know if they haven't advertised a rate, especially you don't really know where to start. Um, I think you've got to be, uh, you've got to do your market um, due diligence on your value. And often you get that through interviewing and finding out what roles you'd be considered mm. for. Um, you have to, you know, it's a negotiation. And again, the stats show us that, you know, women are far less likely to negotiate salary at all, let alone in a new role. Um, so I think you've got to, unfortunately, again, the salary, you know, recruiters put out data. Um, that, that's not a function of um, volume. It's a function of what 
suppliers or employers are willing to pay. So the salary data that comes out of recruiters is, you know, this these firms or these organisations, this size would pay this much. But that's not a function of the fact that in Australia we have 3,000 of those sorts of organisations paying those sorts of roles. That So it's not... It's not um, it's not normalised in terms of population, in terms of supply. Uh, mm. So I think you've got to be really careful. They're useful because they give you ranges and that's a starting point. And good recruiters can give you good feedback as well. So I think, you know, you want to think about those sorts of kind of conversations. Mm. Um, but it's you've kind of on some level got to do all of that and then based with what you've got, make a call. Yeah. On um, what you think you're worth and always up it because you can always negotiate. You know, the assumption is they're always going to talk you down. Mm. I mean, something I certainly worry about is if you, you know, if you sort of overquote on a salary, are you then putting your, you know, potential to get the job in jeopardy? They'll always try and bang you down anyway. So (laughs) I don't, I I don't, um, I think, but are you right? Because you name the fee that comes up and why Mm. everyone kind of is like oh I wouldn't do that um I think if you're out of you'll hear it enough right if you hear it from three or four recruiters that the number is not realistic then you probably want to pay attention to that um in my experience women particularly are less likely to quote numbers that they're not that, that they're not valued and I think the other thing is um recruiters will always try and talk you down in terms of salary right because they've got a very vested interest in getting Mm. you into a role um the other thing i'll say though is be really clear about when you do negotiate like i talk to people all the time that if you go in at at this level um that's ten thousand dollars lower than where you are right now you'll be lucky in a year or 18 months whether you're at that next level that whether you've had that ten thousand dollar increase um, and so it's worth taking time, energy and resource to do the research, to pitch yourself out, to market test is the language I use, to go, oh, okay, cool, where am I at? What's the right kind of window, salary window? Yeah. And then to spend time, energy and resource crafting and articulating your value in a CV because that's going to pitch you at a particular level. A poor crafted CV is going to pitch you ten, twenty thousand $20,000 lower than where wow. um, you could be. Why? Because most CVs don't articulate the value you bring to an organisation, what problems do you solve, what value do you create, right? Most of them just have responsibilities and are weak, are a weak articulation. But when that CV goes into a pile and is handed to a, a client, those often those um, CVs or those candidates are graded in terms of, you know, this is the potential salary. It's a, you know, it's a right. 130K salary. It's a 110K, you know, candidate or things like that. Totally. And I guess the next, the next step is then you have a job. And at some point you may, you may need to want to need to ask for um, a a pay rise or a promotion within that organization. Do you have any sort of basic tips around doing that for all kinds of people? We do. Um, We have seven things to do before you ask for a pay rise. Um, And will I remember all seven Mm. off the top of my head? Top three. Um, (laughs) uh, The first thing is, um, you know, do the preparation. Like, you don't have salary conversations when they're about to hand you a letter with the number. Mm. Um, REM conversations need to start three to six months before decisions are made. Wow. Um, because you want to, that's when budgets are being done. Mm. Um, and the conversations around budgets are the conversations around what people are going to be paid. So I think the pieces start early. Um, do your preparation. I think um, this piece around, you know, what is it that you're asking for? 
um, is really important. Like, do we call it the value stack? It's number four. Um, and because just asking for a salary increase, just because you've been there another 12 months from my perspective, doesn't cut it. Mm. Um, it's what value do you, have you brought to the organization in your current role and above and beyond your current role in the last 12 months? And what value will you bring and contribute to the coming 12 months based on what the organization's strategic direction is? So there's a whole conversation and this is a brainstorm one pager um, for yourself so that you can talk to that really confidently. But also if your boss is in the decision maker and they need to advocate on your behalf then to take that, you know, them to be able to take that and talk to their stakeholders and talk to the value. So I think that's really important. Um, know the number, right? Know what you're looking for. Is it a title? Is it a specific salary number? Um, if not, you know, what's the range? I'll always talk about best case, deal breaker case. Mm. Um, and, you know, know what that looks like. Sometimes it's not money, it's title. Sometimes at a particular point in your career, it could be more valuable for um, a title change slash promotion than it could be around REM. So I think that's really um, that's really important in terms of leaning into the conversation. You need to prepare for a no. Um, sometimes there's value in getting a no now, and um, it's kind of a perfect time to be talking about that because a no now um, positions you for a stronger conversation in six months' time. How do you come back to a no? Do you say, do you put conditions down? Yeah, so we talk about negotiate the no. Right. Uh, so, okay, not now, then when? Cool. Um, or not that number, then this number, um, or what would need to be different in order for you to consider paying me that, like what contribution, what value would I bring, what problem would I solve? Um, so, I, you know, we talk about, or, okay, when can we talk about this again? Okay, not now, then can we have the conversation in six months' time? Um, or not salary, but can I get training? So I think it's, you know, it's how do you um, come back to that so it's not just no full stop, go away, lick your wounds, uh, lose your confidence. It's okay. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about what, what other options there are. Um, and there is always other options. I think it's really useful. You know, we talk about prepare for the no so that if and when it happens, you don't go into, um, you know, into a hole and get all and respond personally, which is rejected. Mm. I'm not worth it. They don't think I'm worthy. The reality is I've supported, you know, hundreds of clients to negotiate salary. There's one out of those hundred hundreds of conversations that have been nice, pleasant and easy. The rest have been what I would say a fight and particularly unpleasant because mm. um, in general organisations think they're doing the right thing um, and paying people appropriately and, and um, you know, when you put it up in their face and um, say, well, actually I don't think you're being fair and I don't think you're valuing me, they're going to be defensive and it's not comfortable to activate that conversation. Yeah. Often, you know, we get to the right place in the end but, um, you know, there's lots of different dynamics that play out that perhaps can feel really difficult. Mm, I suppose right now is a, you know, a particularly difficult time to be talking about um, pay rises when a lot of people are um, out of work or looking for work. And something I've been thinking about is um, kind of an opposite situation where you're either by sort of just um, a desire or a need, you're, you're taking a, a pay cut maybe to change career direction or industries or whatever you're after, how do you sort of manage that in, in an emotional sense? Maybe like take a, take a demotion, but still make it work for you, I suppose. Yeah, look, I'm, I come from the perspective of don't assume you need to take a pay cut. You know, this conversation around transferable skills, 
um, things like leadership, project management, stakeholder management, all of those skills that we acquire. I mean, hospitality is a really good example, right? You think about the stakeholder management experience you get when you're in frontline customer service. It's mm. huge. How does that translate in value over to, for example, a project manager world? Um, so I think that's an important conversation around being able to identify and articulate your trans transferable skills in a, in a manner and language that's, that's useful and meaningful to the organisation you're pivoting to or the industry you're pivoting to. So I'd say don't assume. I'm actually a huge advocate of trying to um, do lateral moves into new industries and hold salary where possible. It's not always possible. And in general, I think, and I've seen it, I've had plenty of clients where we've pivoted across um, using the right strategy, but, you know, they've done the work to articulate the, their skill, capability, experience mm. and reframed it in a way that's meaningful to, um, to this industry, totally. those potential employers as well. That yeah. hospitality example you gave is very personally relevant to myself. Was there anything else you wanted to add about the salary transparency discussion more generally, especially in the current economic climate we're yeah, in? Look, I think it's, you know, don't shy away from, you know, if your organisation is in financial distress, obviously it's not the time to start talking about salary increases. Um, you know, there's an opportunity to get creative though around, um, I always say, you know, if you can't get a pay rise, can you negotiate four days on the existing salary? Like there's an opportunity to get creative about how we do these things. Um, and I think, you know, I've got clients that have negotiated salary increases in this time. Um, don't shy away from it. Even if you get a no, then it marks, it's a marker in the sand when you mm. come to the conversation in six months' time or 12 months' time. Um, they're less likely to say no to you twice in a row. So if we can get the first no out of the way, it can be quite useful. Um, it can be quite useful. And I think the other thing is it's useful for us to start talking about this. I think you need to be really mindful of the politics in organisations. Mm. Um, if you're going to get fired for talking about salary, then obviously it's useful to know about that. Um, but, you know, I think as leaders, I think organisations and leaders really need to take a, a leadership approach on this subject. Um, if we had full transparency around salary, like for what reason do we not have transparency around salary? Um, it really doesn't serve anyone. So I think there's an opportunity for organisations to really, um, will it happen? I, I doubt it. Um, but there's an opportunity, you know, it works for the public sector. Mm. So why wouldn't it work for private sector organisations as well? But I think even in, if not professionally in our organisations, personally, we can start having more of these conversations, mm. you know, with our, um, with our friends, um, with family, again, they could get a little bit heated to so maybe stick with friends. But I think the more that we start to talk about this, even the discomfort that arises when you find out your best friend earns you know, ten or $20,000 more than you, um, if that propels you into having a conversation with your organisation at some point in the next 12 months, that's a really good thing. Um, we know that the research we did a couple of years ago um, showed us that, you know, one in two people feel that they're underpaid by 10% or more, but of, of those, and it was um, research on women here in Australia, of, um, of those less than half had actually had conversations. So um, have conversations with your lead if you feel like you're underpaid. Um, give voice to it. Lean in. Have those conversations. Do some prep work. Don't go in blind. Um, but, you know, please start asking. We talk about the gender pay gap. One of the, one of the easiest, I say easiest, I know it's difficult, but one of the quickest ways through the gender pay gap is to have women um, really stepping up and asking for what they want and deserve. Yeah, and get talking. Well, thanks so much, Kate. Awesome. Thanks so much. That was great. That was really Aww. interesting. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I mean, Kate obviously knew her stuff, but what I found really interesting Twice. was 
you know, how this whole issue of transparency, pay transparency plays into a larger problem, which is we just don't have these conversations about money in society. And it's something that we definitely should be doing more of, I think. Yeah, we need to sort of get beyond it. And hopefully this podcast is helping us in that mission. Yeah, definitely. Um, But you interviewed her. So what was your kind of big takeaway, Liv? Yeah, so the thing that I sort of hadn't thought about at all before is that that prepping for those salary conversations, whether it's a pay rise or, or an interview. Yeah. And the, the whole the research part of it that isn't just like talking to your mates, being like, what do you think I should get paid? Or like basing it on what you've been paid so far, but properly like researching whether it's recruiter data or like other advocacy group research to figure out what you should be paid and then sort of looking at yourself and um and valuing you yourself as a brand in a way do the research do the groundwork do the legwork totes and now it's time to spill the beans so for our final discussion each episode we try to do a little bit of introspection and uh confess some of the weird or sort of awkward financial moves that we sometimes make and then we ask our listeners to do the same yes i love this part it is always a cracker and such fun (laughs) Uh, you know, since we've been talking a lot about salaries today, we figured we might as well talk about spending as well. So Liv, this is the question for the week. You ready? I'm teeing mm-hmm. it up again. Okay. What is the most outlandish purchase that you have made recently in response to, you know, being in our various stages of lockdown? And perhaps given that you've not been doing your usual spending as well, I guess. Yes. So... It's a bit of a weird one. Um, I hadn't been doing a lot of um, spending because I was focusing on on saving for that first little bit. But then I sort of, I was home a lot and I wasn't going out much on weekends. And I just realized that I needed like a bit of extra joy or love in my life. And so um, I've bought all the uh, relevant equipment. And this week I will be picking up two guinea pigs to bring (laughs) into my home. (laughs) Oh my God. Are you serious? Yes, I... I love them so much. I grew up with guinea pigs. We always had, like, over the course of 10 years, we probably had, like, 20 of them because we had a big backyard. <laughs> and I just – I miss them. They're actually, like – they're really good apartment pets, especially if you have a little outdoor area where you can, like, take yeah, them down right. to graze and stuff as well, which we do have. And I just – Near to hold them and they make little squeaking sounds and I'm super excited <laughs> to pick them up and I've already got the names ready. Oh, what are you calling them? Um, so it's a, a throwback to my childhood guinea pig name. So it's going to be Wombat the Second and Samantha Peterson. <laughs> Wombat the Second sounds yeah. like some kind of absolutely hulking <laughs> guinea pig. Like the the well, Arnie of guinea pigs. <laughs> Wombat was one that I had when I was about 10 and she... Um, Gave birth to two litters over the course of her lifetime of baby guinea pigs. So she got kind of fat. So <laughs> Are you looked... sure it wasn't an actual wombat? <laughs> no, it's definitely guinea pig sized. But yeah, so that's the the sort of the you think it's gonna be quite cheap because they're, you know, rodents, but then you, you gotta get a cage and it's gotta be like, you know, you gotta have like the little one to carry them around in as well. And then hay is quite expensive. You always have to have fresh hay and like water bottles, bowls, food. So, yeah, it kind of wow. was like, I was like, oh, it's a couple of hundred dollars all coming together. You might be the only person in Australia who has purchased guinea pigs. No, surprisingly, because I wanted to, uh, I'm going to be rescuing them. So, so through a oh, rescue, but oh, I rang around pet good. stores to see what was going on and they're like sold out. Guinea pigs and rabbits are hot 
off the presses. There you go. Yeah. I didn't realise that. Okay. Totally. Wow. But uh, Maybe what about not you? as unique. <laughs> what about you, Tom? What have you bought recently that's a bit uh, Yes. Wacky? So I was in like a, a total like savings like um, mode before as well. But uh, mm. we went out to Orange. Um, oh, gorgeous. Over the weekend. Yes, would definitely recommend. Um, and we kind of went a little bit nuts on the old um, wine tasting and wine buying. So we managed to... Um, I think we bought back about 25 bottles in our little wow. Toyota Corolla. So, a yeah. veritable seller of wine, 25. I well, I figure this is like a good – it's like a purchase for the future, right? Because, you know, I've tasted these wines now. I know that they're good True. and they can sit, you know, in my tiny apartment taking up a hell of a lot of space <laughs> and we can just slowly drink them. But not every you know, kind of wine gets better with age, does it? I, I actually don't. don't I, yeah, God, I don't know. I'm, I'm not much of a, a wine, you know, connoisseur. So I guess but... we, we need to have a party at your place because you've got 25 bottles, so you're ready to go. And you can bring the guinea pigs. <gasps> oh, no, they couldn't handle it. <laughs> oh, so I, we, think, I think sorry. we've made good decisions so far. Yeah, I, th- I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we actually we extended this uh, question out to some of the uh, some of the people in the office, and we got some interesting uh, responses as well. Uh, would you like to maybe run a, through a couple? Totally. So, um, like me, someone a few people were very wise and got some adorable pets. So there was one uh, dashed puppy, a mottly, yes. slightly long haired dashed, gorgeous. A group of chooks, both, you know, friendly and practical. you got your eggs if you've got the space. Multiple slow cookers. Oh, man, I've always wanted to buy a slow cooker, so. um, I also quite liked a a do-it-yourself bubble tea kit. I I would never even know where to start with that. No, I don't. It's pretty cool. I've got nothing. Um, But my absolute favourite is an overpriced retractable ping-pong net. So... (laughs) I want to know what goes into it being overpriced. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know where reasonable pricing would start on that. But um, yes, clearly the <laughs> the product did not uh, meet the the payment expectations. Wow. <laughs> so this this was like a slightly inspired uh, topic again because a couple of weeks ago I saw this piece in the Guardian about how slipper sales had gone through the roof in Australia. Slippers. Um, yeah, as a result of people like. Being at home, I guess it's winter time. Oh yeah, of it's course. Just, I guess there were a lot of practical reasons for buying slippers, um, which didn't occur to me when I originally read the article, and I was just like, "Wow, people are really splurgy on these unnecessary things." Uh, but you know, there you go. So maybe we should all be buying slippers as well. <laughs> Good for comfort, uh, but yeah, sounds like there's some great and also slightly wacky splurges there. Um, maybe it's time to start browsing. And um, so we'll have to leave the podcast there. Yeah, and if you have any, you know, unique uh, splurges, uh, COVID splurges that you've done yourself, you know, share them with us or share your opinion on uh, salary transparency and getting a pay rise and all those kind of things. We'd definitely love to hear from you. Yes, we totally would. Go ahead and whack it up on the Finance Burrito Facebook page. Uh, But until then, uh, we will be dropping our next episode in a fortnight. So can't wait to uh, be back in your ears. We just want to say a quick thank you to the great minds behind the Finance Burrito who helped make each episode possible. So shout out to Claire, our producer, Gemma and Jada, our researchers, and Rihanna, our social media whiz. 
Just remember, as Mozo writers, we're providing general financial product information. So we're not taking into account your specific financial situation, needs, or personal objectives. We are not recommending any specific product to you. The best advice we can give you is to make your own financial decisions or seek out independent advice. This podcast was brought to you by mozo.com.au.